Welcome to White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini-pod. Delivered in short doses, this mini-podcast features informal, on-topic discussions with in-house experts, outside counsel, and other thought leaders on a wide array of cutting-edge and practical white-collar and compliance topics. Visit PerkinsCoie.com for more information on our nationally ranked white-collar and investigations practice. On this episode of White Collar Briefly, Perkins Coie's White Collar and Investigation attorneys Marcus Funk and Chelsea Kerfman interview special guest Joel Eskenazi, the named defendant in the high-profile FCPA case U.S. v. Eskenazi, and the recipient of the longest-ever criminal sentence in an FCPA case of 15 years. During their conversation, Eskenazi discusses his 2011 trial and conviction based on his role in the Haiti Telco matter, as well as his 11th Circuit appeal that defined an instrument mentality of foreign government. Eskenazi also reflects on his recent release from prison and offers advice for companies operating in high-risk jurisdictions where corruption and bribery are prevalent. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of Perkins Coie LLP and should not be considered legal advice. Our guest today is Joel Eskenazi. Joel has the unfortunate distinction of having been convicted of a Foreign Corrupt Practices Act violation and having been sentenced to the longest ever sentence for violating the FCPA as well as some other charges. He was convicted in 2011. And by way of full disclosure, we at Perkins represented Joel on his appeal. And while the appeal in the 11th Circuit did constrict the definition of an instrumentality of a foreign government somewhat, it unfortunately did not do so sufficiently to get Joel acquitted and his conviction reversed. So Joel, it is great to have you with us. And by way of background, my name is Marcus Funk. I'm a former federal prosecutor from Chicago, now the firm-wide chair of the Perkins Coie White Collar and Investigations Group. And with me is Chelsea Kerfman, who also is a member of our White Collar and Investigations practice. So Joel, just before we get into the questions, um, I know obviously there's been a big change in your circumstances here in the last week or so. Could you just tell us about that a little bit and give us an update? Certainly, I first want to thank you for the opportunity to express my feelings and a little bit about my situation. And also thank you for all the work you've done. I'm very grateful for that. God works in mysterious ways in the midst of storms and because of the COVID-19 situation. I'm currently home confined for the rest of my uh, sentence, which is another three and a half years, which I have left because of coronavirus, COVID-19. I am here home much better than where I was, and I am extremely rejoicing being back with my family and some friends in which uh, have supported me throughout this journey. And it's great to have you back. And again, we know your commutation petition is still pending. And here's a plug for whoever reviews those to give this one a really good look. And uh, I know you were released from custody by a combination of efforts from the firm as well as your own efforts. And so we just congratulate you and are happy to hear that you're back at home. Yes, it's a great joy to be back and looking forward to hopefully getting this commutation taken care of so I can feel free again. Well, Joel, I want to take a bit of a step back for any of our listeners who may not be familiar with your case. Can you give us kind of the really high level, you know, 30 second summary of what your case was about? And then we can talk about kind of some of the different arguments the government put forth. Well, I was charged with the Foreign Corruption Practice Act, and they added a few other things to it because some of the payments in which they claim that I bribe other people or foreign officials were through bank transaction. Basically, I had a telecommunications company 
and we had a deal through a second party. It wasn't really our contract that we were working under and the one that I got indicted through. It was a contract that had been received through a party that didn't have the experience or the monies to do what they were contracted to do, but because of their relationship in the Haitian telecommunications company, which this all stemmed from, came to us for us to put together the deal, and we did so. And from there, that's where our problem stands from. Yeah. And remind me, this was what the early 2000s when this happened, right? When this deal was set up? Yeah, that's correct. This group of people received a contract in October 2002 and it started generating revenue in about a month, a month and a half after we had agreed to go ahead and put the financial necessities and all the equipment necessary to put this deal together. It was based on what used to be very familiar prepaid calling cards for people that don't have the ability to call from cellulars and home lines to their family members abroad. So we put together both the financing part of it as well as the technology part of it. And the deal went through and it worked real well until May of 2001. And the reason why it stopped in 2001 is because the people who we were dealing with, we were paying them and they were supposed to pay the phone company of Haiti and somehow they were not paying. So the manager that had signed the original contract with these people either left or got fired. And the new guy that came in saw that there was a huge amount of monies owed. And the only people that they knew was us because we had our a representative go into their facilities to install equipment. And we also uh, managed the equipment that we install for this particular contract. So when they saw that the people that actually had the contract weren't paying, they said, well, we're gonna cut them off and create a new contract. The new contract was totally different from the original contract because the original contract was based on paying per minutes. And the second contract that we signed in May 31st, I believe it was, 2001, was based on a joint venture agreement that was revenue sharing. Therefore, our company or myself got indicted on the original contract that this other party received rather than on the second one. And my attorney failed to show that in court. Just to make sure that I've got that clear. So the original contract in this case, the one that caused the problems was between your company and then a, a third party. And that third party separately contracted with the Haiti telecommunications company. Is that correct? That is correct. And that's a one contract that I got indicted on, even though that the period in which the bribery scheme they claimed that took place, that contract was not in effect. And, you know, Chelsea and I teach a class at the University of Colorado School of Law on the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, as well as some other supply chain issues. And no surprise, we read your opinion, the opinion from your case that describes what happened. And it's interesting, Joel, because a good number of students, it's almost a 50-50 split, feel that, you know, and this is no offense to you, but they feel that basically you engaged in bribery and that's that. And the other half feel that you were, you know, sort of unfairly treated and that you're actually a victim of a scheme to extort. And I know that you were the one who actually sat, we didn't represent you at trial, you sat there and heard what the prosecution said about you in your case, as well as other cases. Do you have any observations or any thoughts on sort of how you were characterized in your trial and how other people were characterized in other trials or how you were characterized rather in other trials? Well, I, I think that there was bias from the judge from the beginning at the uh, hearing of the sentencing. He said that he held himself from telling the jury that he thought that I was lying throughout 
my testimony. So something else that he did, which he mentioned even in trial, was that he had given them cake that was brought to him by one of his grandchildren for his birthday. So I think that I was characterized from the beginning as this monster business guy that was bribing somebody. But just to go back to the original relationship from the first contract, you know, when we install this equipment in the phone company of Haiti, you got to remember that we went in and we did all the installation. And when that first contract started taking place uh, and generating revenues, the phone company of Haiti, in many occasions, they needed funding to buy equipment from the United States. And because we knew that we were going to owe them money, they requested that we buy those equipment and then deduct it from their invoices. And that was a normal practice that we started from the beginning. And that continued on until about August when one of the witnesses that was in my trial, Robert Antoine, came in that he saw how the operation was going and he created the scheme to steal money from the company and these payments in which they call bribery were actually payments that were supposed to have gone to the phone company of Haiti but because this guy said that he's now working with a local company in Miami to be the purchasing agent for Teleco and for some of the payments of the invoices for the new joint venture agreement for the revenues that were going to go to them to go to this other company so they can buy equipment. Those are the payments that they're calling bribery. In other words, in order for it to be bribery, I have to have an advantage over all the other entities that were also connected to the phone company of Haiti. And in no way, shape or form was I at an advantage over all the other companies. So therefore, bribery didn't take place at all. One important issue, too, is that internally I had my own in-house attorney that dealt with all the uh, FCC filing that we had to do because we also were certified as a local phone company in many states in the country, and we also were an international carrier. Therefore, we had to do a lot of constant filing for regulatory issues, and he oversaw every step of the way all the transaction and all the deals that we got involved with. Therefore, he never said or worried that these payments that were supposed to have gone to Teleco that went to this other entity by the request of the witness that was part of the government were bribe payments. And those are the payments that they consider to be bribes. And in fairness, I mean, you never made the argument that it was because of your attorney giving you legal advice that you did what you did, right? That, I don't remember seeing that as a part of the formal defense in the trial. Well, in my testimony, I must have said that numerous times because I said, because I was the only one that testified other than my partner, he didn't testify. But I said very clearly that all of these payments and all of our transaction and all the legality of what we did was oversaw by our attorney. So yes, it, it was said. Okay. And now in the follow-on trial, not of you, but of one of your alleged co-conspirators, the same prosecutor that referred to you as essentially a corrupt businessman who could only make money through bribery referred to you as an extortion victim. And I think the term that he used was that you were a victim of a, quote, shakedown by the Haitian government and or rather the employees. Do you remember that? Did you read that somewhere? I did. I do have the transcript and I read them back and forth quite a bit. And I couldn't believe what I read because simply if I was part of a shakedown, then where's bribery? How did bribery take place? None of that existed. And the other thing, too, was that the same witness which participated 
on behalf of the government in my trial that worked for Teleco that said that those payments were bribery totally said the opposite of the contract that was really in place during the period of what they claim I bribed from 2001 to 2004. So he perjured himself in the first one because he said totally the opposite, that the joint venture agreement of May 2001, which was a revenue sharing rather than a permitted contract, said the opposite in that trial that you just mentioned. And I'm sure it must have been incredibly emotional for you, Joel, because at different times it looked like, for example, you know, you're waiting for the results of the appeal and that must have been a very emotional time. And the entire case must have been an emotional roller coaster for you. One question that comes up a lot is essentially are the merits of the appeal, and this is going to sound like sour grapes, and I'm sure it is sour grapes because we did not prevail, but one of the points we made was that in the jury instructions, the government had one definition of an instrumentality of a foreign government. In their briefing, they had inconsistent definitions, inconsistent with one another, as well as with what they argued at trial. And then during the oral argument in Miami, they had yet a fourth definition of an instrumentality of a foreign government. And we felt that that perfectly illustrated why people were not being given appropriate notice because the government changed the definition each time they were asked for a definition. And so obviously that was something that gave some hope that your appeal, along with the general course of the argument, that your appeal might be successful. Now, the government did a wonderful job briefing it and they did a great job arguing it. But this inconsistency, I know you must have had some opinions about whether you felt you had notice of whether what you were dealing with essentially was a foreign government and employees of a foreign government or an instrumentality of a foreign government, or whether you view them as just private actors. Well, as I said earlier to us, they never even said anything to the effect of being any kind of officials or government workers or diplomats or anything like that. These individuals, which I dealt with from the general manager to the liaison, which is a gentleman that was a witness for the government on my trial, they never stated anything about being anything to do with the government, nor did they ever said that the company was an instrumentality or an agency of the government. As a matter of fact, Teleco is a for-profit corporation. They have a board member, so we never saw it in any way, shape, or form that they were an instrumentality or an agency of the government at all. So one of the things Marcus mentioned that, you know, we teach your case as part of our class at CU Law, because I think it, it has been, you know, for better or worse, it's, it's become one of the seminal cases in terms of kind of defining what makes someone a government official. One question I have is, you know, when you were working on these contracts and dealing with the Haiti Telco, did you view them as government agents? You know, what was your thinking at the time? We never thought that there were any kind of government officials or employees or agents of any kind. We saw Teleco as a regular corporation, which is how they were structured from the inception by two private individuals in Haiti back in 1968. We knew that, you know, the people that were working there were not diplomats or government workers or any kind of thing like that, nor did they ever said anything to the effect. But obviously, that was what the government needed for this witness to say in order for Foreign Corruption Practice Act to be applicable. Yeah. And I know that there certainly is a difference of opinion among people in our practice and even in our students as to whether they should, in fact, have been considered officials, given kind of the facts in this case. 
because it was a, a more attenuated government relationship. But, you know, we've talked a bit about the trial, but kind of procedurally, how did we get from trial to, you know, now to being incarcerated and then home? Can you kind of walk us through what happened with your case after that first trial? Certainly. After the case was decided by the jury, which I was guilty, immediately thereafter, I was put in prison in the uh, building of Miami. There, I was held for about six months and then transferred to many different places until I ended up in my final destination of Fort Dix, New Jersey, which is quite a bit away from home. And it made it very difficult to obviously be able to physically see my family since finances were obviously difficult and also the distance was difficult. So I was there for about three and a half years and later transferred to Jessup, Georgia, which I was there for another five years. But in between that, I was held over in many different places for many months until I finally got to the final destination. So that's where I'm at right now. Now I'm at home. Thank God. So Joel, looking back at your experience with you know your case in the trial and having worked in an environment like Haiti, which is very corrupt and has some challenges on that front, do you have any advice or tips for companies that are trying to operate in countries where you know bribery is a much more common business practice? Again, that's a great question, Chelsea, and it's hard to really answer with a specific opinion that would help companies simply because third world countries are so far behind in how they do business. And in my case in particular, I didn't get the original contract that was indicted for. It was gotten by a group of people that knew the individual that was running the phone company of Haiti. And I didn't even know who they were until they had the contract in hand and they came to me and asked me if I was interested in doing a joint venture with them and investing the money for both the equipment and the marketing of the product that we were going to sell. But in these countries that are so difficult because they're so highly corrupt, companies just have to be very cautious and careful as to who they utilize. And unfortunately, in order to open up doors in these places, they need to get somebody with the ability to open up the doors with the government agencies. And a lot of times it requires having to entertain these people. And even entertaining these people, the Department of Justice is going after companies as if it was bribery, and that's unfortunate. We can see what's going on now with Walmart. They know that at the end of the day, the fine is really going to be paid by the end user of the companies that they're fining because these companies are going to raise their products or services. At the end of the day, they're going to pay for the fine, yes, but who's going to pay for it ultimately? The citizens of this country. One question on that, though, and I'll just play a little devil's advocate here for you, and maybe it's because I'm still, you know, in my heart, a uh, former federal prosecutor, still somewhat sympathetic to the DOJ, and I have family connections with the government, of course, as well. So here's what a cynic might say. They might say, well, Joel, you're right. Maybe you're right. Maybe there should be less fines because companies can pay fines. Maybe there should be more individuals sent to jail. When the conversation about individuals being sent to jail comes up in the FCPA context, you know, unfortunately, your name is front and center. I mean, you are the individual who went to jail in the minds of most people who are, you know, casual or, or even full time observers of the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. You're certainly the most high profile person. So what do you think about that argument that what you're really saying is less fines because companies can pay fines, more executives being charged for misconduct? Because we know that 
in fact, bribery does happen all over the world, and it happens a lot. I mean, what do you think about that argument? Well, this is the way I look at it, and that's a good question that you put together. And, you know, I look at it like this. How is it that when these companies pay fines, there's not one individual that gets indicted, no one serves one single day in prison? And here I am serving 15 years of prison because I didn't have the money to pay them a fine, and that they use me as an example for all these large corporations. Where's the justice system? Where's the equality of justice for the same crime? It, it just doesn't make any sense at all. So, Joel, do you have any reflections on, on the trial itself and the outcome of the trial? Certainly. Like I said to you many times before, Marcus, when my partner and I were found guilty in the same trial during the same period, and he received only 84 months versus me getting 180 months for the same charges in the same trial. And I found that to be so unjust and unfair. And at the same time, my trial attorney mentioned that I was never offered a plea deal because I consider that knowing from other people that have already gone through the whole process, that is very difficult to beat the government. So I consider that to be a possibility, but he mentioned that I had never received a plea deal. So if that's the case, I believe that the government from the beginning did not want a deal, but a trial to see if they can get, obviously, an indictment and get me to be found guilty so they can use me as a guinea pig in this particular law. And, you know, I recall from the transcripts that there were some fireworks between you, the judge, and your counsel, and the judge and the government. When you reflect on the sentences that were handed out, why do you think you were treated substantially differently than your co-defendant? Uh, it's hard to say as to why. I know for a fact that the judge didn't like me he didn't like my demeanor. He stated that I would be the kind of guy that he would have as a friend to maybe have a beer. He said all kinds of garbage in the sentencing trial. But at the end, he said that he didn't believe a word I said and that he was holding himself real hard from letting the jury know that he didn't believe anything. I think that his gestures during the trial somehow persuaded the jury to side with him and how he treated me during the trial. Well, and you obviously went from being a very successful Miami business person to being a defendant in a high-profile criminal case that got a lot of press coverage. And then ultimately, you're an inmate in a federal prison where you have spent almost eight years. Give us some insights that you had, just how you reflect on sort of that incredible change in your life and also lessons you learned and experiences you had in prison that you think our listeners would uh, benefit from hearing about. Like you said, this case had a major uh, impact throughout the world. In fact, uh, when I was in Fort Dix, New Jersey, and we were waiting for the mail to be distributed, one of the officers that distributed the mail, when he called my name, one of the inmates in there in a big building that I was residing in, over 350 people, one individual came up to me and said, are you Joel Escanasi, the guy of the telecommunications company out of Miami that got in prison for Foreign Corruption Practice Act? And I said, yes, I am. He goes, well, let me tell you, your case is extremely well known in Britain. I was extradited from England and I heard about your case and I was following a great deal because it had a lot of traction over there and a lot of people were interested in knowing and so was I. So as you said, it did get a lot of notoriety throughout the world because of, I guess, the amount of time that was given 
And the fact that all the definitions that were given for the instrumentality or the agency and all of that. But, you know, one of the things that I thank God for is the fact that during this journey, I have taken it in a positive way in the sense of what can I do for other people with what I know, with the knowledge that I have, with the abilities that I have. And what I've done in prison was tutor. I tutor for over eight years. All my time that I've been in prison, I've been tutoring individuals to get their GED. I've been tutoring individuals to learn a second language, Spanish or English. And I have over 7,000 hours of tutoring, which has been recognized by Department of Labor out of Washington, D.C., which I got a certificate as, as an apprenticeship where I could also become a tutor at any school nationwide. So again, prison is not something that obviously I would want anybody to go through. But if anybody goes through it, you got to make the best of it in a positive way. A lot of people that I saw there, obviously, rather than moving forward, they went backwards. They became worse than when they came in. My goal was to be a better man, to be somebody that can give other people some hope if they're encountering the same situation, whether it's justified or unjustified, that when they go in, that they can take advantage of that period and when they come out, they could be an example and console others not to go in or that if they're going in to make a better situation for them. And Joel, I have to say, I really admire your outlook on this and kind of how you've handled your time in prison and what you've done with your time. And you really have, I think, made good use of it. I know we're getting close to the end of our, our session here today. So I want to leave a couple moments for any last thoughts you may have, any parting comments you want to make before we close today. Again, as I said, I took this opportunity and I thank you all for everything you have done. It's been a great experience. I'm so excited with the fact that I know that what I've gone through could be so helpful for many other people, not just necessarily in the Foreign Corruption Practice Act, but many other people that might be in the wrong path of their lives in this world that I believe that I can tell them what prison is. I think that prison has become a style for a lot of young kids that they have to go through it in order to become men. And they're so wrong about life. And I think that I can maybe impact their thought process and make them think very differently because prison is not a good place for anybody. I was there. I saw how everything works. There's great injustice in it. And it's just something that I don't think that it would be good for anyone. Well, thank you again, Joel, for joining us today. It's been great to talk to you. And we're so happy that you are able to join us from your home and not in prison any longer. And we wish you the best of luck going forward with your commutation petition. I appreciate that. This concludes this episode of White Collar Briefly. Please visit whitecollarbriefly.com where you can subscribe to our blog and find additional updates on current white collar and compliance topics. White Collar Briefly, a Perkins Coie mini pod, Copyright 2020 by Perkins Coie LLP. Thank you for listening.